0: I invite you again to join me in the book of Jeremiah. We'll actually be seeking to cover considerable territory this morning from chapter 40 through chapter 45. Again, I will make a selection of readings here. So first, Jeremiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah, when he took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. The captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done as as He has said. Because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey His voice, this thing has come upon you. Now behold, I release you today from the chains on your hands. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, and I will look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come, see The whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it good and right to go. Now down to verse 13. Now Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the leaders of the forces in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mitzpah and said to him, Do you know that Baalos the king of Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, would not believe him. Then Johanan, the son of Kareah, spoke secretly to Gedaliah at Mitzpah. Please let me go down and strike down Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he take your life? so that all the Judeans who are gathered about you would be scattered and the remnant of Judah would perish. But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam said to Johanan, the son of Kareah, you shall not do this thing, for you're speaking falsely of Ishmael. Chapter 41, verse 1. In the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama of the royal family, note, connected to the royal family, one of the chief officers of the king came with ten men to Gadaliah, the son of Ahikam at Mitzpah, and they ate bread together there at Mitzpah. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the ten with him rose up and struck down Gadaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shephan, with the sword and killed him. Whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor in the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mitzpah and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. Chapter 42, verse 1. Then all the commanders of the forces, and Johanan the son of Kareah and Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant, because we're left with but a few as your eyes see us, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing we should do. Jeremiah said to them, I've heard you. Behold, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request, and whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord your God sends you to us. Whether it's good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. Chapter 44. Verse 1, I'm sorry, wrong spot. 44 verse 15, my apologies, I got my eyes on the wrong place here. Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods, and all the women who stood by a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt answered Jeremiah, as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. But we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we did. Both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, for then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we've lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. Chapter 45. Verse 1, the word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Barak the son of Neriah when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Barak. You said, Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I'm weary with my groaning, and I find no rest. Thus shall you say to him. Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built I am breaking down, and what I have planted I am plucking up, that is the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord, but I'll give you your life as a prize of war in all the places to which you may go. This is the very word of our God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, now by word and by spirit, open our eyes. Lead us to understand and rightly settle in our minds how this applies and how we should live. Save us from foolishness. Save us from arrogance. May we humble ourselves under this, your word. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. We've been watching what many of us would consider the accelerating decline of American culture. And now there's a major election on the horizon and the fault lines that we behold now are about to be displayed even more clearly and my suspicion is not being a prophet nor the son of a prophet, they'll get worse. Causes anxiety. Causes to ask questions. Makes us wonder. Philip Ryken in a sermon on this text used these words as part of his introduction. This is about the year 2000-2001. If it exists at all what will the United States of America be like in the year 2050? Some Christians prophesy a return to the glory days of Christian America. They long for the rebuilding of the nation. They work to recapture the evangelical faith of our founding fathers. They hope to regain control of Congress and the media. They believe we're on the verge of a spiritual revival that will sweep the nation. Yet, Reichen isn't buying it, and here's his reasoning. There's too much reliance on worldly methods to accomplish spiritual goals. There's too little faithful preaching of God's Word, which alone can prepare the way for genuine revival. Furthermore, it's doubtful whether Christian America ever existed. From the beginning, Americans have been sinners as well as saints. Now whether you're as pessimistic as Dr. Riken, we do well to pay attention to what Scripture shows us about human nature and even the sinfulness which can plague those who claim to belong to the Lord. Here at this place in Jeremiah, we've in essence turned a corner. This is the end of the prophecy as we're seeing it. The end of his ministry is in sight. And I'll admit we're taking large bites in this sermon and next weeks. Today chapters 40 to 45, next week 46 to 51. So if you want to read ahead, please do so. But what the text today I think confronts us about is we operate under a, an assumption here that surely... If God would simply bring judgment, people will change direction. If judgment will come, then we'll change. But judgment, my friends, does not necessarily lead to repentance. Judgment by itself is insufficient to change the human heart. Now if you're wondering how I'm going to do all these chapters, you, you can join me because I'm wondering about it a little bit myself, but we are going to make the attempt. Consider this first. Chapter 40, verses 1 through 12, the prophet's vindication. Now verse 1 begins this way, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, but there is no verbal communication recorded in these chapters until chapter 42 at verse 7. So what does this mean? How is this, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him him go from Ramah, took him down in chains along with the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. Now initially, Jeremiah finds himself, after the walls are breached, he's carried off with everybody else into captivity because nobody knows what he looks like among the Chaldeans, among the Babylonians. He doesn't have a Facebook page. He doesn't have Instagram. He has no way of people knowing. He doesn't even have a, a, a name tag to wear. Jeremiah, prophet. So he's carried off with everyone else. When they figure out who he is, they let him go. But why are we at this juncture? Is this merely just to talk to us about Jeremiah? There's an element of that. The prophecy's fulfilled, right? The city has been devastated. Judah is, in a sense, no more. Judgment has fallen. Isn't Jeremiah done? You see, I think Jeremiah and Baruch, when they put the prophet's book together, are meaning for us to see that even in the actions and events which take place from chapters 1 to 39, and in the final quarter of the book, there is still a word from the Lord it is also a word that demonstrates how bad off we actually can be. Isn't it striking that Jeremiah is rescued from enemies in Judah by friends in Babylon? Who'd have thought? Now he's gone along with the rest, they figure out who he is, and they give him options. If you're looking at timing, the city walls are breached on about the 18th of July, 586. And then on the 17th of August or so, the walls are finally dismantled and the whole city is torched. What has ended now for Jeremiah is roughly 40 years of being ignored, disliked, contradicted, rejected, arrested, thrown in prison... Kept in custody, thrown in a cistern, kept in custody, loathed, despised, hated. And you know what we read in that first 12 verses of chapter 40 is the judgment has come. They're trying to set up provisional government. Gedalia is listed, we'll talk more about him in a moment. Jeremiah is freed, but it's also created this sudden shifting of the realities of life in Judah. The landless poor, in fact, maybe even those who had been enslaved, you remember where they said, Oh, we're going to let all the slaves go, and then a verse later, and then they took them all back. These folks that had been in indentured servitude may well have been among those left in the land, and suddenly those who had nothing had everything all the vineyards, all the farms, all the crops. Anything that's left, it goes to these poor who were rejected and left in the land. Now Jeremiah goes to be with Gedalia. This will be short-lived. He doesn't get to live where he wants. Ultimately, he's going to be forced to go to Egypt. And that leads us to this next picture. At verse 13, Conspiracy. And I'll say conspiracy confirmed. Now, may I stop for just a moment here and make an observation. Conspiracy theory is all sorts of entertaining. And depending on who you listen to, you can find all sorts of conspiracies. And I've lived long enough that I've believed some and laughed off others and I think what we have to do here is be careful that we don't get caught up in conspiracy theories. Here's one of the biggest problems with conspiracy theories. People are dumb. And they're immoral and they're unethical and they don't know how to keep secrets. And they don't do what they say they're going to do. Now I know some of you, well, I've got the evidence, it's all right here. Where'd you... I found it online. May the Lord bless and keep you. There is one conspiracy. Satan will conspire with anybody in any way, shape, or form to undo and undermine the kingdom of God. That conspiracy is for real. And it's not to say that there aren't minor conspiracies, I'm saying my brothers and sisters as Christians don't get too caught up in the latest of conspiracy theories about all the things that are happening in the world. You're going to find, yes, there are people who make common cause for immoral, unethical things. But understand, at heart, they're all wicked, they can't get along with one another, there ain't no way it's going to work out well for them. The only way they can unite is in some way to unite in a front against the kingdom, and they're the brainless dupes, if you will, of Satan. Now, here's a conspiracy that is quite real. Gedalia appears to be a, have been a good man, a sound leader. He's been a supporter of Jeremiah. His family goes back for generations as being faithful. But all at once, there are new names that start appearing here in chapter 40, the end of it, and into 41. Gedalia isn't a Davidic king, he's a man of integrity. And he has good standing in Judah. He's decided rather than staying in Jerusalem and trying to carve out a government in the city that has the walls destroyed and has been burned, that's all pretty depressing. Let's remove ourselves about eight miles north to the place called Mitzvah. And among those who converge on Mitzvah are apparently the leaders of guerrilla bands that have avoided the conflict around Jerusalem. There's two that come to the fore. We read about Johanan ben Kareah, or Kareah, who's a loyalist, and then Ishmael ben Nethaniah, the son of Nethaniah. And here's what happens: Gedaliah is trying to govern. He's governing on the auspices of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. He is trying to encourage people. He says in verse 9, chapter 40, do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it will be well with you. As for me, I'll dwell at Mitzvah to represent you before the Chaldeans who will come to us. But as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oil and store them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. He's trying to bring peace and calmness and normalcy to a land that has been completely upset, turned upside down. But then we have this Johanan and Ishmael. Johanan comes to Gedalia and says, Ishmael has, has made a pact, he's become the hit man, if you will, for Baalus, the king of Ammon. And he set out to kill you. And Gedaliah won't hear him. In fact, at the end of the 40th chapter, here's what he says Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, said to Yohanan, the son of Kareah, You shall not do this thing, for you are speaking falsely of Ishmael. He tells him, Shut up about it. Now, you wonder, why is it that Gedaliah won't hear this? We're not really given any reasons, but here's what I'm thinking. I think he's tired. I think he's tired of the upheaval, he's tired of the animosity, and he's thinking we're all in this together, we're the refugees. Let's all just get along, I'm not going to believe any conspiracies anymore. Everybody's on the same page, ain't nobody going to touch me in light of the fact that Nebuchadnezzar has set me up as governor, it's all going to be fine, you people worry too much, it's all good. You notice they don't ask Jeremiah about it. Gedalia doesn't take a moment and say, hey, You know what? Jeremiah, come over here and hear this. Tell me what you think. What does the Lord say about this? He thinks this is all very obvious, everything's fine, and it leads to chapter 41, his assassination, along with everybody in his household, and the Babylonians left there as a bodyguard. The day after, an entourage of pilgrims comes to Mitzvah. You read about them there. It talks about them walking in. You read it at verse 4 and 5. Eighty men arrive from Shechem and Shiloh and Samaria with their beards shaved and their clothes torn and their bodies gashed, bringing grain offerings and incense to present at the temple of the Lord. This was a sign of repentance, of grief of huge sorrow, and when they arrive Ishmael deceives them and they kill them all except for a handful, ten who said they had goodies hidden away, some food and gold and so on, uh, stores of wheat, barley, oil, and honey hidden in the fields, in essence not just food but that would be used for barter, and they let them live. And Ishmael starts marching for Ammon. Now, folks, when I read this, I cannot help but be reminded of a lot of the book of Judges. This sounds very much like the book of Judges. Evil leaders doing evil things and battling against one another and the destruction it brings. So he takes all these refugees, leaves Mitzvah, this is Ishmael, and and he's walking away. Now what that points out to us, folks, is the problems for Judah are not resolved by getting rid of the elites in Jerusalem. The problems are spread out through the whole nation. Never for a moment think that the judgment that falls on Judah is only about the leaders. It is about the entirety of the people overwhelmingly living idolatrous lives. So off they march. He's going to take them, present them to Balas in Ammon. But we find in the forty-first chapter, at verse eleven, Johanan or Johanan the son of Kareah and all his leaders hear about the treachery. They take the forces that it, that he needs, and they come for the captives. Now here is a picture of deliverance. Here is this fellow Johanan uh, coming to the rescue and. Apparently Ishmael didn't want the fight because he lets all of his captives go and he and a a handful of men get away and he goes on back to Balas and Ammon. Now, Johanan has become the leader here and he has become the rescuer. But he doesn't take them back to Mitzpah, right? The city where Gadali had set up government. He takes them to another community, one that is near Bethlehem. Why? Well, something bad's happened here. Nebuchadnezzar's going to be ticked. The guy he appointed as governor has been assassinated, his soldiers have been killed, and he's going to come down here and rain terror and destruction down on all of us. The only hope we have is to go back to Egypt. Some of you are wondering why the responsive reading we did today. Israel had a problem of always wanting to run back to Egypt. They wanted to run back to that place as security, as comfort. The argument in Numbers was we had plenty of food and there were certainly enough graves. At least we'd have died with a full stomach if you'd have left us in Egypt. So let's go back. I'm reminded of uh, Oh Keith Green, the Christian singer-songwriter His album, So You'll Want to Go Back to Egypt. An entertaining bit of lyrics. But when he gets them all rounded up, including Jeremiah, he does something very spiritual. Jeremiah, before we go anywhere, You need to ask God about this. You ask the Lord. Now pay attention to his language. Notice what he says. Chapter 42, verse 2. Let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord, your God, for us, for all this remnant, because we're left with but a few as your eyes see us, that the Lord, your God, may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. That ought to sound all sorts of alarm bells. Johanan doesn't say, the Lord our God, Jeremiah you're the one talking for this Yahweh. You go talk to him, I'm sure that he's gonna give us a word. Whatever he says, and this is their promise. Look at verse 6. Whether it's good or bad, we'll obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we're sending you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. Now, at verse 7, we find out that ten days later the Lord of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and he starts telling them. And here's what God tells him to do: stay in the land. Don't go to Egypt. If you go to Egypt, the very thing you're hoping won't happen, will happen. If you stay, the thing you're afraid will happen, won't happen. Nebuchadnezzar works for me, thus saith the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar's not going to do anything to you. Stay in the land. And what did they promise? Whatever you tell us, we will do. But in chapter 43, verse, <laughs> oh, let's start at, say, verse 2, Azariah the son of Hoshiah and Johanan the son of Kareah and all the insolent men, now notice how he described it, all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say do not go to Egypt to live there. But Baruch the son of Neriah has sent you against us. Somehow they bought a conspiracy theory that somehow Baruch was running the show. And Jeremiah is just doing what he said. I don't know what their problem was with Baruch but they have believed a conspiracy here to deliver us into the hands of the Chaldeans that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. So, Johanan the son of Kareah and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. And guess what else? They make Jeremiah go with them. Wow. My friend, catch on to something here. The word of the Lord works whether in Judah, or down near Bethlehem, or in Egypt, or as the exiles found even in Babylon as they discover the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel are among them. You understand what they're saying? Pray to the Lord so we get an answer. But of course the Lord must be reasonable about this. And the only reasonable thing to do is to go to Egypt. Huh. I don't know, folks. have you ever prayed and told the Lord how the answer ought to be? Maybe just made suggestions. And then the answer doesn't come the way you want it. I want to be cautious here, but hear what I'm about to say, the revealed Word of God is more certain and sound and something to be faithfully trusted than your emotions, opinions, feelings, and intuitions. I know, got everybody in here, if I, if I start preaching sola scriptura, everybody, amen! Okay, good. Sola scriptura. But do you actually believe the text is sufficient? And what it says is enough? See, It's one thing to affirm Scripture alone, it's another thing to live Scripture alone. And the test here for the remnant left in Judah is will you hear the word of the Lord? And they even promised whatever He says we'll do. They get the word, nope, you didn't hear from God. Eh, wrong. So they go to Egypt, specifically to Tapanes. And the Lord then sends a visual. Jeremiah is another one of the prophets who's occasionally called to do a visual illustration. So at the end of the 43rd chapter you have him taking under the Lord's direction stones large stones and hide them in the mortar in the pavement that's at the entrance of Pharaoh's palace in Tapanes, in the sight of the men of Judah. Now I am still trying to get my mind around how this whole thing looks. Because To the best of my recollection, any time I have seen mortar and mortared stone in place, there's no holes. Nay, no, hey, there was a design where there were some holes in this one. I don't know. Whatever the case, somehow Jeremiah can take large stones and shove them down into the pavement in the mortar joints as an illustration to Judah. It's a sign, and every time they walk in and out of the city, they're going to see those stones down there as a reminder. What's the reminder? Nebuchadnezzar, under the direction of the Lord, is going to set up his tent right on that entrance. You are not escaping judgment. The only hope you have is to hear and heed me and stay in the land. Egypt is doomed and you're doomed with them. Now are you depressed yet? I mean we've had conspiracy and murder and uh, mass murder. Something like a hundred people Executed, all their bodies shoved in, 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 into a cistern at mitzvah. and they try to get away. They're rescued. They go back. They find themselves near Bethlehem. They're trying to be spiritual, and the Lord, of the Lord comes, and they turn it down. Brothers and sisters, are you seeing the picture here? Judgment alone doesn't convert. Judgment alone doesn't change us it's not that judgment isn't right what God does here is absolutely righteous but friends hear what I'm saying the righteous judgment of God will not in and of itself be enough to bring you to repentance and faith something more has to happen And we're not done here. Here we find in the forty-fourth chapter, Jeremiah is in Egypt, and of all things, he's preaching to what was apparently a dispersion of Israelite communities that had settled in foreign countries. Uh, Tapanes or Tapanes, would have been the first considerable town they'd have reached. He references in chapter forty-four Memphis. Memphis would have been what it's what's called Lower Egypt, which is confusing because when you look at it on a map, Lower Egypt is north. It's the delta of the Nile River. Upper Egypt is south, and the city that's referenced there is Pathros. So the Israelite communities, both old and new, are scattered all across Egypt, and Jeremiah brings a word from the Lord, and here's the word. You've heard and seen the state of your homeland, the Lord did that. I ask you for the reasons, and the reasons are clear, because they were idolatrous and they wouldn't listen. And I condemn you to the same punishments. And is this not striking? He tells them about pouring out the wrath. The Lord says, "'I poured out my wrath.'" Verse 10, chapter 44, "'They've not humbled themselves even to this day, nor have they feared, nor walked in my law and my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, "'Behold, I'll set my face against you for harm to cut off all Judah. I'll take the remnant of Judah, have set their faces to come to the land of Egypt to live, and they shall all be consumed.'" And what he calls them to do here is to repent and abandon their idol worship there in Egypt. Don't do this. This is the reason you got exiled to begin with was idolatry. Stop doing this. But then you read verse 15, chapter 44. And all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods... "'And all the women who stood by, a great assembly, "'all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt, "'answered, Jeremiah, "'As for the word that you've spoken to us in the name of the Lord, "'we will not listen to you.'" Why? "'We'll do everything that we vowed, "'making offerings to the Queen of Heaven, "'pouring out drink offerings.'" to her as we did both we and our fathers our kings and our officials in the city of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem for then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster but since we've left off making the offering to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings we've lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine do you hear their argument pure pragmatism and a misreading of the providence of God the people of Israel who enter in the covenant with the Lord, one of the things he says to them is that whenever there's famine, whenever there's need, whenever there's want, it is because you have disobeyed me. Repent, and you'll get these things back. How did they read it? Well, as long as we were offering to the Queen of Heaven, everything was lovely. And it only went south when we stopped doing that. They misread the providence of God in light of the actual Word of God. My brothers and sisters, hear what I say. Be careful, be oh so careful of trying to interpret the providence of God without the Word of God. And further, let the Word of God triumph over your interpretation of providence. We tend to try to figure out what God's will is by observing providential things. And we try to interpret those things. And over and over again, you know what we discover? (laughs) We're lousy at this. We just don't get it right. Let me... Let me give you a little picture of this. This is from J.I. Packer's uh, "Knowing God," that some of you are studying in Sunday school, right? Packer talks about the will of God, and he says it this way: What we want is, is what we want is a map. We want something up on the wall that says, "You are here," and as you go forward, here's a dip in the road, here's a curve, here's where the bridge is out, here's the detour. And now you follow this and you'll be following my will. And we think somehow the Lord is going to show us those things so we can walk in the will of the Lord. Wrong image. Wrong thought. He said it's better to think of the guidance of the Word of God as driving down the road and you see a sign that says curve. Slow down. Even better to see the providence of God in the rear view mirror. What did God want to do? Look behind you. That's what he wanted to do. But I want to know the future. Here's your future. He's in charge. He knows. And if he knows, that ought to be enough. These folks continue in their wicked superstition. They have been drawn into the Egyptian culture. Isn't this sad? When they were slaves and needed deliverance, they weren't as compromised as they are now living free in Egypt and they bought into Egypt's religion. And he tells them at the end of that 44th chapter, verse 27, Behold, I'm watching over them for disaster and not for good. All the men of Judah... In the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there's an end of them. My friends, hear this. The judgment that he has prophesied has not changed their hearts. Now, why do I keep coming back to that? I think there's a part of us that thinks if we just make it hard enough on others, if the Lord just make it hard enough, they'd actually repent. All you have to do is give a cursory reading to the Old Testament and you realize that's not true. I'll come back to that in a moment. Because the 45th chapter suddenly pops up and it's This is an earlier prophecy. This goes back to the fourth year of Jehoiakim. And it's a story, a short one, about Baruch. And it's peculiar. Because the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, to Baruch, and he quotes him. I love this. He quotes what Baruch is saying. Woe is me, For the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I'm weary with my groaning and I find no rest. This is where you're all supposed to go, oh, the moment is passed, don't do it. See, even the faithful can misunderstand what God's doing and think we deserve better than what our life actually is. (laughs) Mm. So what's the Lord's message? Boy, this sounds familiar. Like this has only been repeated dozens and dozens of times in Jeremiah so far. Behold, what I've built I'm breaking down, what I've planted I'm plucking up, that is the whole land. Verse 5, And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. But I'm on the your side. I'm Jeremiah's right-hand guy. I'm helping the prophet. There ought to be a better deal for me in this. I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord, but I'll give you your life as a prize of war in all the places where you go. Wow, that's said multiple times, isn't it? And it's even true for the faithful. There's hope for the remnant, My brothers and sisters, how often do we want to cry out for a break? Here's your break, you get to live. You'll survive. Now, I know, you're saying, okay, how in the world does this apply? Is this a message for America? Nope. I think if there's a message for America, it's in the next chapters that are about God's judgment on the nations. Well, is it a message to the church? Yes, to an extent. But my friends, you ought to be feeling a tension in this, a, a crisis. This ought to be painful. Because here they are, everything that could go wrong seems to have gone wrong, right? They, they've lost the holy city, the temple is despoiled and burnt to the ground, the city's burnt. They're trying to catch on to life and live for a little while longer and conspiracy comes about and assassinations and kidnapping and then another kidnapping rather than going to Ammon, a kidnapping to go to Egypt. And it's kind of like, come on, this will be better. Let's go to Egypt. That'll be safe. Ain't no way Nebuchadnezzar's coming down there. And what do they find out? God said, no, you stay. If you don't stay, you're doomed. What do they do? They leave because they trust their thoughts and their words more than they trust the Word of God. And even in the land of Egypt, they're more Egyptian than they are the people of God. And disaster's coming. Now how in the world are you and I supposed to do anything with that? Well, first of all, Christian, I'm not for a moment telling you that you're in danger of going back to Egypt. Oh, you may look back, if you will, to that life of sin, You may look back to what you were before you became a Christian and think in terms you shouldn't and even behave in ways that you shouldn't. But my friend, this is why the new covenant is so essential and so central to everything that Jeremiah prophesied. Here is once again the illustration that the Mosaic covenant was not enough because it didn't change the hearts of those in the covenant. You could be under the Mosaic legislation. You could keep... The external things and still not have your heart changed. The new covenant brings salvation. It brings a righteousness which I cannot produce, which you cannot produce. It brings us the righteousness of our substitute, Jesus Christ our Lord. And it does so through judgment. Not judgment falling on us but judgment falling on him as our substitute. Our sins are paid for. We don't have to go into some kind of exile. We live here as exiles. We're the weirdos in the culture. We are (sighs) the citizens of a new kingdom. Our sins are atoned for and beyond that a change is wrought in our hearts where we will obey and we will hear and we will follow. Christian, don't ever make the mistake of saying, well boy, if judgment would come America would learn. I'm here to tell you, my friend the history of humanity is that judgment doesn't change people. Not in any deep an abiding sort of way it's like it's like the little kid that got in trouble and I know this never happens in your house but let me run with the illustration and was told you're going to sit on that sofa I don't want to sit down sit down but if I don't want you sit down or else sits down Well, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. Behold the condition of the sons and daughters of Adam. We may outwardly comply without an inward change. This is the good news of the gospel. You can be reconciled, you can be redeemed, and you are to be regenerated. And in that changed. Friend, when you read text like this, it ought to humble you. It ought to make you weep a bit. It ought to make you look at yourself and realize the only reason I'm changed is because of what Christ has done. And my friend, if you don't know him, here's the call. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Let's pray.